This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book and is number four of the series of studies in the prophecy of Isaiah. Today we have before us a rather large section that is Isaiah chapter 7 to chapter 12. And it's very obvious when we look at those chapters that it will not be possible for us to attempt a very detailed examination of the history of the movement, otherwise we shall either hurry it and spoil it by attempting too much. Now the first thing I would like to do is to tell you uh, that we have already in this meeting read a chapter from the first chapter of the prophet Hosea. And if you will compare the first verse of Hosea with the first verse of Isaiah chapter 1, you'll see they belong to exactly the same period. So if you will look at the first verse of Isaiah chapter 1, and let me read the first verse of Hosea chapter 1, you will see that they are practically identical. Now you're looking at Isaiah, which says the vision of Isaiah. I'm reading Hosea. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That little bit is added. Of course, it makes no difference to the time. He's just added a little bit more information. Now, if you read chapter 1 of Hosea, you discover that the story is carried by three children. Three children are born to this man, and they have prophetic names. The first is Jezreel, which first of all means to scatter, and then also means to sow, because in the second chapter of Hosea, and the closing verse, it says in verse 22, And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, and I will sow her. Now is the other meaning of the word Jezreel. I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say unto them that were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. So he's still using the name of these three children, because to come back to Hosea 1, the first one was called Jezreel, the second one in verse 6 is called Lo-Ruhamah, not having obtained mercy, and the third one in verse 9, Lo-Ami, not my people. Well now we come to the prophet Isaiah, and we find that in just the same way, the Lord instructed him with regard to the names of his children or the names of children that were to be born in that period. He wasn't allowed to give them any particular name that he fancied or that belonged to his family. They were to bear a, a prophetic meaning. So we have uh, three children, uh, Shia Jashub, Emmanuel, and one very long one, Maya Shalal Hashbeth. Now you have in front of you the chart that we are reading, and so you see they punctuate the story. Now those three are stepping stones to the last one. We will not stop too long on the first three. It's as if it were we're looking across a very rapid stream with a good deal of danger about it. We want to get to a rock of safety the other side. And to do so, we have three stepping stones. Well, we're glad of the stepping stones, but we're more glad of the rock that's in front of us. So all I ask you to notice is that in the midst of this terrible condition in which they were living, God interposed these three children's names to lead them at last to the one name that matters most. 
You will see that there is the threat of invasion as you read the passage, and you will see there is the danger of confederacy. Those two things are the background. When when an army is investing Jerusalem or invading Palestine, and you know they are the Assyrians or that type of people, they were a terribly cruel people. And it may be that right in the middle of the prophet Isaiah there's been put a little bit of history in order that we may be conscious of this. You see, the first 35 chapters of Isaiah are just prophecy, and the chapter 40 to 66 are prophecy. And yet the middle of the book is not prophecy. It's history that's past. It's Sennacherib who comes up against and vows what he's going to do to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so you could, you must be a bit sympathetic with these people if they tremble in their shoes. But the trouble was, they began to make confederacy with this and with that and the other. And the last resort of confederacy is to turn your back on the living God, as you'll find it, it says, they turned to the wizards that peep and mutter. They went to the spiritualists instead of to God. And that's more or less where the world is drifting and gets right out into the open in the book of the Revelation. Now these three children bear names that indicate some of the conditions and the hopes and the fears. The first one conveys a promise. The remnant shall return. The remnant returned and were spoiled again, but ultimately there is a thought that however much there may be decimation in the ranks of God's people, they're never utterly, never utterly destroyed. I suppose there's one day in the history of Israel when even though they wanted to believe in God and his word, it was an extreme difficulty to believe it because Athaliah destroyed all the seed royal and there wasn't one left so far as we know. However could the Messiah come as the son of David when the whole lot were blotted out and then we were taken behind the scenes and we discovered that a nursemaid had snatched up the infant child and he was kept in secret for six years. Notice the six. And the seventh year came and they said, God save the king. And Athaliah was slain. So for six years those people were in darkness and had to believe in spite of themselves. Sympathise with them. So here we have the promise, a remnant shall return. God has never left himself without the thinnest possible thread, but it continues right through to this very day. As Paul was saying about the way in which his own people were leaving, Hath God cast his, away his people whom he forward you? God forbid, God forbid, for there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So we'll, we'll leave that to speak for itself as you pursue it. And then you'll see the next, the next title is one of deep meaning. A child is coming who's going to bear the name Emmanuel. And this word Emmanuel, as you know, was given to our Saviour and is called, uh, and it is translated God with us. God with us. Just for a moment, with regard to ourselves, here is a people up to their neck in trouble. Trouble that can only be imagined if you've never been connected with invading armies and the cruelty and the famine and the various things that go with it. And God doesn't say to us, oh, you'll never be in trouble. 
But what he does say to us is, I am with you. God with us. I was speaking to somebody recently and I listened to myself speaking to them and I thought, oh, I think that's pretty good. Have you ever done that? Because they were speaking to me about trouble. And I said, look, when you go and have to deal with a person who is in trouble, don't you sit there and pretend that you've got all the answers because you haven't. But you say to them, look, friend, I'm in trouble as you are. And I've got no answer to some of it as you have not. But I tell you what I've got. I've got the Lord with me and you poor soul haven't. Now that makes all the difference in the world. He doesn't say, I will be with you and you'll have no trouble. He said, I will be with you in trouble. He doesn't say you'll be exempt. But oh, what a difference. If we must live in a day of trouble and we must while there's a war on, while there's the opposition of Satan and Christ, darkness and light, good and evil, he says, nevertheless, I'm with you. So here we have the second child and he anticipates the coming of Christ. For he was born at Bethlehem and he was given a twofold name. His mother called him Jesus and the comment goes on and this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah his name should be called Emmanuel God with us. And then we have that other shocking name which means they're going to be made a spoil and a prey. So they were not left without a witness that there was going to be decimation and destruction. But now it leads on to the one child that matters most. Because, you see, it says, these children are for a sign and a wonder. And the child that matters most is not found in chapter 7, or in chapter 8, but in chapter 9. So shall we now turn to chapter 9 and see this? son, to which these other sons have been pointing. In the 18th verse of chapter 8, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And then comes the word that I've referred to, that where you get confederacy with another nation, now you get the confederacy with evil itself. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that are familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God? Should they seek for the living to the dead, and to the law and to the testimony? Well now we come to the prophecy. It doesn't say that there will be a child born at that time. That's what we had in chapter uh, the earlier chapter. Now we are told there is a day coming when this shall be true. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Two statements, a child born. But that doesn't fully explain the birth of Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a child born, but a son given. And then when you read about the birth of that son in the chapter in Hebrews which says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me, lo, I come. No child apart from that, that child has ever said a word about himself before he was born, but this one did. A body hast thou prepared me, lo, I come. So now we're up against a child of wonder. And if anybody thinks that in this life they can explain 
the relationship of the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ and the Trinity and what not, they're knowing far more than I do. I think it's better to accept what God says. Believe all that he's told us. Remember there's a lot more that's necessary and remember that his name is wonderful. Wonderful. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The shoulder is the place of responsibility. The names of the children of Israel were born upon the shoulder of the high priest and there's even the old proverb put your shoulder to the wheel borrowed from the Greek shoulder, the place of responsibility. I think it says in another passage the key of David shall be upon his shoulder. Same thought. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government. What a picture that is of a day of stability that must come in spite of, in, instead of all the instability of the governments that they had here in the prophet Isaiah and dare I say it, the governments that have succeeded them right down to the present day whether it be in this land or across the Atlantic or anywhere else. The more we see of the disintegration that's going on, the more we see the breakdown, as it were, of right and wrong, all the difficulties that are approaching, the more we feel the prayer must go up, even so come, Lord Jesus. The government is upon his shoulder. And his name should be called Wonderful. Counselor. Now comes the extraordinary title. The Mighty God. And these words are repeated in chapter 10, verse 21. The remnant shall return. Isn't that the name of one of the sons? And the, even the remnant of Jacob unto the mighty God. So the remnant shall return is the name of one of these children. And the mighty God was the name of one of these children. So there's no doubt about its meaning. The mighty God. The everlasting father is a mistake because... It doesn't mean that there's a confusion between the Son and the Father. It's really the other way around, the Father of the ages. And the Father is used in the Old Testament like the Father of all those who handle the harp and the organ and whatnot. Merely the first one or the chief one. So we have the Father of the ages and the Prince of Peace. This is bringing things to the glorious goal that God intends all the way through. The Prince of Peace. So of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment, with justice, from henceforth, even forever. What's going to accomplish this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, that's the way in which we are introduced to the uh, passage that we have before us in the 11th chapter. I'm missing a good deal, as you see, because a book like Isaiah with its 66 chapters would take us such a tremendous time to wade through that we must select a little. Now, this leads us then to that day, that government, that kingdom, that prince of peace and the consequences of his reign. So we'll look now at chapter 11. And you'll glimpse again at the chart that you have in front of you and you will see the way in the subject matter is distributed. But first of all, a word with regard to the Lord himself. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. 
Here's a mixture. A rod out of the stem of Jesse, and yet a branch. The one word seems to indicate the stock, and the other seems to indicate the, the one is sort of the stem, and the other the branch. It's a mixture. And it's a, very much like the thought we've already looked at. It's a child born who is the mighty God. I've never met anybody whom it could be possibly said he was the forerunner of his own ancestor. Well, is that impossible? I know it is. And yet when I read the last book of the Bible, the last chapter in the last book of the Bible, I read that this Christ is the root and offspring of David. Perhaps you'd like to see it for yourself because we're dealing with wondrous things. Revelation 22, verse 16, I am the root and offspring of David. Well, that, that's, a, that's an anomaly. That's a something that is quite beyond any ordinary human experience. He could be the root of David. You could understand that. He could be the offspring of David. You could understand that. But to be the two, the root and offspring. So here we have again the same thought suggested. There should be a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch should go out of his roots. And then we have his endowment. Now if you read the Berean Expositor, as I hope you do, even though I wrote the article myself, I believe I must commend it to you. That is to say, in the November number, the last article deals with the relationship of Christ and the witness of the Holy Spirit. And some have taken this line, that inasmuch as Christ emptied himself, so he was just talking as an ordinary person in his day talked and he believed that Moses wrote the book of Moses and that's what it amounted to. But his birth was the birth was under the control of the Spirit of God. When Mary was addressed by the angel, she would be overshadowed by the Spirit of God. The birth was overshadowed. When the moment came for him to enter into his ministry, some people have wondered why he didn't start his ministry before he was 30. Well, he waited. And then he says, The Spirit of the Lord hath anointed me and sent me to preach the gospel to the poor. He started. And right the way through, until he offered himself through the eternal spirit without spot to God. And then in the resurrection he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. He's never left without the spirit of God. So think what you like about the Son of God here. It's guaranteed every step of his path from his birth to his resurrection guided by the Spirit of God. Now we've got here verse 2 and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And this Spirit is a sevenfold Spirit as far as my memory gives me. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And shall make him a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And I do remember once when I was in Holland years ago speaking to a friend there and he said, could you tell me where that passage in the Bible is when it says that the Lord shall be of a great scent, a great smell? I thought, it was a funny thing. How could it be a great smell? And this is the bit he had in mind. Because when it says a quick understanding, it's referring to a, an animal who has a very keen scent. So keen that like you see a deer suddenly prick its head round and catch 
the smell of a, of a person who may be a danger to him afar off and away he's gone. And the Messiah was so quick of scent that whatever was the Father's will, he knew it and he did it. That this is the one that is going to have the government upon his shoulder and bring about all these things to do with peace. Well now, we come to the actual statement about the um, character of this kingdom. It says in verse 3, he shall be, make him a quick understanding in the seed of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. And he said that himself in John the fifth chapter. He said, whatsoever I see him do, and whatsoever I hear. He says, I don't speak out of my own authority. He gives me the words to speak. And what he see, what I see him do, I do. And he's still going to be like that when he's reigning as king in the glorious millennial kingdom yet to come. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, if you know Psalm 72, you know that is a prediction of David's greater son. Shall we just read a few verses to be sure that we're on that, that um, right ground? David is writing in Psalm 72 about the king's son. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. You see? And then, um, he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass and showers upon uh, that water the earth. And his, his days shall the righteous flourish and so on you get a, a wonderful picture of that kingdom which is yet to come. We get a picture here in Isaiah 11. Uh, different ways are said about it. But before we go into further description about the blessedness of that kingdom, we have to deal with an enemy. Now our version reads, verse uh, 4, And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And the word earth in the Hebrew language is Eretz, and we spell it E-R-E-T-Z, Eretz. Now the word for oppressor is Eretz, A-R-I-T-Z. Now you see, the E and the A are almost indistinguishable, and most of those who have commented on this passage say it doesn't mean smiting the earth, it means smiting the oppressor. And he shall smite with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Now that is practically a reference further on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So you might just like to link that up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his cunning. So there we have the thought that now this great anti-Christian monstrosity which is going to straddle the earth presently. The world's getting ready for it, isn't it? They're agitating and urging for a world parliament and a world police force and a world navy and a world church. And when it's all ready, there's going to come the man of sin, the son of perdition and say, now I'm going to take the whole thing over. And he'd have to be destroyed before ever this other kingdom shall be set up, which will reach to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I'm back again in Isaiah 11, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. 
Now comes a very strange statement. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and fattening together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hold of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's dead. Now whatever view you take of that, that is so very, very opposite and contrary to anything we know. We do know this, from the testimony of scripture, that when Adam sinned, some blight fell upon the earth. The Lord said, no longer shall it produce as it has done for you, Adam. But thorns and thistles now shall come forth. Well, that looks as though there were no thorns and thistles in the garden of Eden. I don't know anybody who's ever had an allotment or a garden that hasn't found that they grow all right, whatever you do, but not in the garden of Eden. But outside, oh yes. And of course we are given to understand that the thorns that grow on these trees are abortions. They are never should be, they are just dislocations, something gone wrong in nature. And by careful breeding and breeding, you can breed out the thorns again, but it's only getting a little bit back to what the millennium will be one day. Now, how a lion is going to have his inside all altered and his gastric juices changed and his teeth, I don't know, don't ask me. But it says that whatever it stands for, physically or spiritually or both, it's going to be a tremendous change. You see, the... the uh, let him have dominion over the cattle, the beast, and the fowl of the air. That was a part of Adam's dominion which he lost. It was enshrined in the cherubim, the man, the lion, the ox, the eagle. It was carried on the mercy seat, and it comes right out in the book of the Revelation, the four living creatures, and there we have creation restored as it should be under the Prince of Peace. So we'll leave all the zoological and various other problems to those who can tackle them and say, well, I don't know, but God can do it all right. If he can make the earth suddenly produce thorns and thistles, he can make the earth blossom as a rose and put all these things back into their place. You will find by turning a little bit further on in Isaiah that this bit is lifted out and put into the what is called the second Isaiah. Um, I think it's a bit somewhere in uh, chapter 65 or up that end somewhere. Yes. The end of chapter 65. In verse 17 of chapter 65, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. So the new creation in Isaiah is limited a little bit to the restoration of Jerusalem. Then it says in verse 25, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Now, do you notice that? Come back to Isaiah 11, in verse 9. It doesn't say they shall not hurt nor destroy in the whole of the world from one end of the world to the other. It's a limited peace. It's a limited government for the time being. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Now if you will think of the prophet Zechariah, don't turn to it for a moment, but if you will think of the last chapter, it says that the nations of those who are left 
after the terrible wars have decimated the world so, the nations of those that are left shall go up to Jerusalem three times a year to learn the law of the Lord. And it's specifically said that if any of them don't, they will have some form of punishment because that is God's intention. So Jerusalem, when this kingdom is set up, shall be the very centre of the earth and there will be a perfect creation, a new creation. But the rest of the world will be waiting and the rest of the nations round about will be being taught so that they will eventually say, come, let us go to the house of the Lord. It says so earlier in Isaiah. So we've got, first of all, God blessing his people in the midst of the earth, and then, not to be hugged by them and kept by them, but from them to flow out to the very ends of the earth. So shall we see that for ourselves? This um, verse 9 again. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Now it goes on to add a bit more. For the earth, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now again you may leave that to speak for itself. But what does it mean? As the waters cover the sea. Because strictly speaking, if you're down by the seaside and you look out over the stretch of sea, the water isn't covering the sea, is it? It's the water covering the land, isn't it? But what does God mean? Has he made them is it a little bit of a mixed thing? No. So now I will ask you to turn to the prophet Zechariah. Because I think you will get a hint there as to um, what is intended. It says in verse in chapter 14, verse 4, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem, on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Then presently, it says, verse 8, And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea, the hinder sea rather, in summer and in winter shall it be. Now this is speaking about an actual locality. You can't spiritualize the Mount of Olives which is before Jerusalem on the east. So that Mount of Olives is going to be split by volcanic or earthquake action and a river of water, of life, is to flow from it. Now I must ask you to look at the closing chapters of Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel has something to say about this water. Uh, chapter, some, somewhere toward the end. Oh, where is it? Yes. Ah, oh, that's the one, thank you, yes. Chapter 47, Ezekiel. He says that he was taken to the, to the house of God. And it says in the first verse, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. 
to the forefront of the house stood toward the east. And the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. And this water goes on. And it's, spread, it's deepening. It was up to his ankles in verse 3. It was up to his loins in verse 4. It was something that could not be passed over in verse 5. And then he said, this is going down to the sea. And in verse 10 he tells you, what's the En Gedi. Now if you look at the map in your Bible, you'll see that En Gedi is on the shores of the Dead Sea. Now isn't that a wonderful picture? The Dead Sea is there, a picture of destruction, that's where Sodom was destroyed, it's a desolation and practically nothing will grow. What a picture, a desolation. Now, God says, there's coming living water, and it's going right the way down, and it's going to heal, right down to En Gedi. So the Dead Sea is going to give place to the river of water of life. So we're back again in Isaiah 11. And the knowledge of the Lord, now we can add to it now from what we know, the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth, or the knowledge the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters which flow out from Jerusalem shall cover the Dead Sea, as life blots out death. That's the picture. Well now the rest of the chapter goes on to speak about the um, conclusion of this matter. At um, verse 15, the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams thereof, and make men go over dry shod. Here is a repetition of the Exodus. Because the seven streams have to do with the delta of the river Nile. Now chapter 12, the last few minutes. And in that day, as a consequence, as a result of this great setting up, this wonderful kingdom, and in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou, for it's coming, here's the word of Isaiah 40, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, and thou comfortest me, Behold, God is my salvation. What a difference from that confederacy with this one and that one and the other one until they turn to the dead instead of the living God. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. And it ends up with the words that we know so well. Verse 6. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And the last words of the prophet Ezekiel is the title of the Lord. The Lord is there. Jehovah Shammah. Well, that's a few things gathered up with a great deal left out as the way in which this prophet has introduced this mighty subject in the first half of his prophecy. Now after this, we deal with different nations, Babylon and Egypt and Tyre and I don't know what, and I don't intend occupying the time that will be necessary to plough into all those. There's no reason why you who are listening shouldn't wade through every chapter 
and look up all its history and all its geography. But I feel I should not be doing what was right to take such a formidable amount of our, ti- amount of our time. So when we meet together next time, I shall suggest to you that we have had a little pointer in these few chapters. We've had a little direction as what is coming. We have some idea of this kingdom that's going to be set up and the one who is going to be the ruler and the prince of peace. And when we get to chapter 40, then we have the prophet opening out in a sense that he couldn't before. With those words we've already suggested, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And I believe then we shall have our hearts moved and our hearts touched as we read God's word concerning the restoration which he says must come.